Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to turn now to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Gospel of Mark chapter 6. When you find that, let's stand together as the people of God, calling to mind that his word is holy, inerrant, infallible, inspired, the authority over our lives. When we read the word of God, it's as though God is speaking to us audibly. It lacks no power. Lacks no authority. Entirely inerrant and inspired in all that it says. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an execution with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him, in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when Jesus' disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen? You may be seated. If I announced to you this morning that the topic of the sermon would be euthanasia, I'm sure that there would be somebody who would be a little bit disturbed about that and say, 
why in the world should we be talking about the youth in Asia when <laughs> we have so many problems here in America? We've got drugs and gangs and high costs of college and they would be disturbed by that. Why in the world should we care about the youth in Asia? And then somebody would be gracious to that person, I imagine, right? You'd be gracious because most of us are in the know. And somebody would kind of elbow that person and say, euthanasia does not mean the youth in Asia. Euthanasia is a Greek word that comes from two other Greek words, you, which means good, and thanatos, which means death. And so he's going to talk today about what is commonly called physician-assisted suicide. And that person, too, would actually be wrong because we're not talking about physician-assisted suicide today, although that's a worthy topic to be addressed, especially as our culture seems to be bent on death. And any culture that's willing to tolerate abortion won't be long for that culture before it will begin to put away other people that it deems to be disposable or unhelpful to the state. And so... That's an important topic, but it's not our topic this morning. This morning we're talking about euthanasia, but I'm going to call it euthanatos, which is the word that the Greeks, especially the Greek philosophers, would use to describe the ideal of the good death. Now, I know that sounds contradictory because death is terrible, death is dark and grievous, but the Greek philosophers had a concept that they called the euthanatos or the good death and it was this idea that given that all of us are gonna die one day that there is an ideal kind of death that we should be looking forward to, the good death. And so the philosophers would often discuss this among themselves, what it meant to die the good death. What would that look like theoretically? And they often held up Socrates as the paragon of one who died the good death. Socrates was martyred for his beliefs. He wasn't a Christian. He was a pagan philosopher, but he was martyred nevertheless. And so sometimes I would talk about Socrates' death as a model of the euthanatos, the, the good death. And so we're going to give our attention to this ancient concept today. And I do want to just simply remark at the, uh, the beginning of the message today that it's good for us to talk about death from time to time. We're not consumed by it. We're not overwhelmed with it. We're not necessarily afraid of it as Christians, but it's good for us to think about death because, well, 100% of us in the room are going to die at some point, and so it's good to think about these things ahead of time. Most of the time today, we only talk about death at funerals, and while that's a good opportunity to preach the gospel, I actually enjoy, I know this sounds strange, but funerals are a better opportunity to preach the gospel sometimes than weddings because even at weddings, people are all excited. They're thinking about the dresses and the after party and the dancing and what the bridesmaids are wearing. But at funerals, funerals, you have a captive audience and people are thinking about big things and asking important questions. And so funerals would tend to be good times to talk about death, eternity, heaven and hell. So I appreciate that as a gospel minister. But today, it's going to be nice for us to talk about death because nobody's died today. This is not a funeral. Now, we're not overcome with grief and emotion, so we can look at this topic a little bit more objectively than we might otherwise be able to consider it. And so today, uh, my topic, my theme is the euthanatos, the good death. Is there such a thing? What would it look like? What would it be like to die a good death? And John the Baptist's death here provides for us the perfect opportunity 
to peer into this ancient question and perhaps consider what it might look like for us to die well as believers. And so if you have closed your Bible, let's go ahead and open them back up to Mark chapter 6. Please don't close your Bibles during the preaching of God's Word. That would be counterproductive to what I'm trying to do up here as a Bible expositor. We want to look at what the Bible actually says. And so what we're doing is working right through this passage. And so if you look at verse 14, verse 14 and 15 introduces of some new material in Mark's gospel. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Heard of what? What did King Herod hear of? Well, he heard of what was happening in the previous section, namely Jesus sending out the apostles to go to proclaim a message of repentance. And probably specifically, the it's referred to in verse 14 has to do with their success that we ended up with last time in last week's message. Verse 13, the healing of many people and the casting out of demons. And so King Herod hears of this and he is rightly beside himself wondering what in the world is this? And so then what happens here is Mark, the gospel writer, Mark is the author of the book of Mark, obviously. Mark realizes that The moment he brings up John the Baptist in verse 14, he has to then go back and explain what happened to John the Baptist. And so our whole section today, from verses 15 all the way down to 29, is what we might call in literature or in movies a flashback scene. This is something that's already happened. The event prompting this flashback is Jesus being compared to John the Baptist by Herod, But this whole section is something that's already happened and Mark now needs to explain what this is. And so that's the context. I really would like to look at this passage today and again, we're working on the idea of the euthanatos, the good death. What could this possibly mean? Let me suggest, first of all, number one, this will be our first main point. A good death is preceded by a virtuous life. A good death is preceded by a virtuous life. Now that's not original to me. Um, that's not even necessarily uniquely Christian to say that. Even the Greek philosophers realized this. This was part of what the philosophers said a good death was like. But I certainly wouldn't deny it. And in fact, that's def- I think it's definitely right here in the passage that John the Baptist's death is in some ways magnified in importance because of the kind of life that he lived prior to death. And so we can say that this is true. Part of dying a good death implies, first of all, that you've lived A good life, a good death is a fitting capstone to a virtuous life. Look at verse 14. For when Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known, some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why these miraculous powers are at work in him, him being Christ at the end of 14, 15. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so John, uh, excuse me, Herod actually gets a little bit superstitious here. He's saying, what's going on here? We've seen something like this before. Where have we seen somebody like this before? Who is like this Nazarene, miracle-working preacher? And Herod's most obvious connection to his mind is that this would seem to be John the Baptist redivivus or raised from the dead. Now that's why Mark has to go back and explain the death of Mark. But nevertheless, Herod apparently sees the similarity between Jesus and John the Baptist. Now we know John the Baptist because we've already been introduced to him all the way back in Mark chapter one. So if you wanna flip back with me just for a moment to Mark chapter one, we're gonna see this wild 
wilderness preacher. In Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, we don't have time to read this paragraph this morning, but the two things that are remarkable about John the Baptist's life and his ministry are that which each of the four Gospels maintains about John the Baptist. That is that his message was primarily built around the idea of repentance. That should make a spark in your, in your brain right now because we talked about that last week, right? Is the hallmark message of Jesus, repentance. And then also this baptism of water that John is proclaiming here, which in some ways is going to forefigure the water baptism of Christianity. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so um, Herod here is unwittingly giving John the Baptist a great compliment, isn't he? You may say to yourself, well, who's being complimented here? Is it Jesus? Is Jesus receiving a compliment because he's being compared to John the Baptist? Or is it the other way around? I'd say it's the other way around, right? Because obviously it's a great comparison if somebody were to ever compare you to Jesus Christ. I'm not sure how many times that's happened in your life. Have you ever been mistaken for Christ before? Ever been walking around the mall or down the street? Oh, that's, nope, that's, thought it was Jesus. It's not. Rarely happens to us. But this is an extraordinary compliment for the now deceased John the Baptist to be compared to Jesus Christ. It's incredible. And so it's possible that at least to think about this um, somewhat superficially, perhaps John actually looked like Jesus. You ever thought about that for a moment? Maybe there was some physical resemblance between the two. That would seem to be a logical possibility given that they're actually related. Remember, what is the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist? They actually have a, a common family relation, don't they? And Mary is related to Elizabeth. By the way, Jesus would have gotten no um, genetic DNA from Joseph because Joseph actually had no part in the conception of Jesus. And so Jesus' physical resemblance, you ever think about this? It's kind of interesting. Jesus' physical resemblance would have been derived primarily, if not exclusively, from Mary's side. Mary's the one who's related to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. If there was ever such thing as identical twins, and I'm not suggesting that they were, do you remember that TV show? What was that TV show way back when? Identical, tw- identical cousins, that's what I meant. What is it? Patty Duke, identical cousins, that's right. It's possible that Jesus and John the Baptist at least bore a physical resemblance to one another. It's possible. But I don't think that's exactly what Herod's hitting on here, is it? when he mistakes these two, when he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead, it has something more to do with their desire to glorify God. It has something more to do with the passion of their, their preaching. It has something more to do with both John and Jesus' willingness to forsake the world. Willing to step out to proclaim prophetically the message of repent and believe. And in this way, both Jesus and John resemble the great prophet Elijah who was the forerunner for both of them. Now Jesus says something that's really wonderful about his own cousin. I want you to flip over to John's gospel just for a moment. I want you to see what Christ says about John the Baptist, thinking about this virtuous life. Right? John chapter five, go there please if you will. Jesus speaking glowingly of his his identical cousin here. John 5:33. you sent to John and he's borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, 
But I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. A burning and shining lamp. That's how Jesus describes John. That's amazing. Just think about that. Burning inwardly with what? With love for God, with a desire for God's glory. Burning with love in the heart and yet shining. His life is shining. He's, burn, he's a burning lamp. But he's also a shining life. If burning is the inward, shining is the outward, shining with, with light and with his witness, with a luminescence, this attractiveness to John's life. And so we might admit that there are some who, who burn inwardly but don't shine necessarily very much outwardly. There are others who shine outwardly, but it's all superficial because they don't burn inwardly and yet John had both of these things. He burned with love. He burned with worship. He burned with a desire for God's glory and his life shone brilliantly. And so Christ says, here is one, speaking of John, here is one who both burned and shined. And if you think about that, that might be the most wonderful thing that anybody could ever say about you. A life that is both burning with love for God and shining with witness for his truth. And so if you want to die the good death, the first thing that's necessary is that you live the virtuous life. And if you want to live the virtuous life, then you both burn with love and shine with the light of witness. So that'll be our first observation about the euthanatos, the good death. Let's go on then to the second requirements is that a good death would require faithfulness in the very act of dying itself. Jump ahead in Mark 6 to verse 26. Let's look at John's death for a moment. It says, The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her, And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and he beheaded him in prison. And he brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Now let's think here about what were the political actions that caused the death of John the Baptist. So you have to know a little bit about Herod's family history here. This is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great actually died several decades ago. This is Herod Antipas. And so usually when the Gospels talk about Herod being alive at the same time as Jesus, uh, it's often a reference to Herod Antipas, an ancestor of Herod the Great. Now, Herod Antipas had a half-brother named Philip who's mentioned in this text. Philip's wife is Herodias, but what happens is Herod Antipas, looking across the Thanksgiving dinner table, espies his half-brother Philip's beautiful wife Herodias and he actually divorces, this is history here, actually divorces his own wife and then ends up marrying, taking on as another woman, another consort, as, you, as, as it were, Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Can you imagine how awkward that would be at family gatherings from this point forward? If you're setting the table and they're all coming over for dinner, where do you, where do you put Herodias now, right? This is awkward. And so in this, in, this, in this moment, in the scene here, we have John already in prison. Now, why has John been in prison? John has been in prison because he has been steadfastly crying out against this adulterous relationship. Okay. So John is the 
victim of what we might call political persecution here. John's declaring godliness. John is preaching the message of righteousness and holiness. He's put in prison here. And in this scene, Herod Antipas, he's gathered together all of his men. He's got all of his soldiers. Look at verse 21. It says, his nobles, his military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. And it is the occasion of his own birthday. And so Herod, as part of the festivities, he has Herodias' daughter, Salome, do a dance for everybody. Do a dance before all the officials and the nobles. And this dance is so beautiful and so alluring and so provocative even that Herod makes a grand statement and a huge promise in front of all his guests. He promises he'll give to Herodias whatever she wants. I picture her in my mind as being a teenager. I don't know why. Can't prove that from Scripture, but it seems to be she would be young and beautiful. And Herod makes his bold promise he'll give her anything she wants. Salome leans over to Herodias. Her mom asks for a little advice. Gosh, what do I do now, mom? And it's Herodias' idea to kill John the Baptist because he has been the thorn in their side ever since they got together. This is the political opportunity to put to death the man who has been embarrassing us, shaming us, highlighting our sin. And so Herod, in agreement, calls for the executioner who goes down into the dungeon, presumably, and calls John the Baptist out. Imagine if you're John the Baptist. You see the light of the candle coming down the hallway. You hear the clip-clop of the footsteps coming down the hall. Maybe you think you're free. Maybe you think this is the day you get out. Instead, he's executed. Looked it up this morning just out of curiosity. The guillotine was invented in about 1280, so this is not a guillotine death here. That's not how they would do beheadings in these days. It'd probably be either the axe or the sword or the knife. The Muslims do it by knife. It's more gruesome that way. The sword of the axe is faster. We don't know how it happened, but here's one thing I would suggest. Knowing the character of John the Baptist, I can seriously doubt that there would have been any begging any pleading, any whimpering, any crying out. I can only imagine that John the Baptist faced his death with courage, conviction, character, fortitude, faithfulness, just as he lived his entire life up to this point. So sort of reminds me of the book of Hebrews. I'm gonna look this one up real quick. You just stay right where you are in Mark chapter six. Listen to this. It says, others suffered the mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. That's Hebrews 11.38. So John, in this moment, the very moments of his death, he does not cry out. He does not beg for mercy. He doesn't whimper. He doesn't apologize. He lifts his chin to the heavens and he dies like a martyr. The scripture says the world is not worthy of men who die in this way. Now I do want to add at this point that dying in faithfulness is in some ways even more important than living in virtue. How so? How is dying in faithfulness even more important than living a virtuous life? Here's why. Because if you die in faithfulness, it seems to, and at least in some ways, write over the mistakes that you made in your life. Just as writing over a pencil with pen is a more lasting impression. Does that make sense? 
So in the very moments of your death, the way that you die is in some ways more important than the way that you live. Let me give you an example. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, it kind of does. Think about this. Remember the thief on the cross? Actually, there were two thieves on the cross. Both of them were mocking Jesus, one of the gospels tells us. But one of the thieves on the cross, in the very moments of his death, what does he do? He turns and he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to this thief on the, on the cross, whose whole life had been a mess to this point, I mean, he's getting killed for his acts of wickedness and rebellion, and yet in the very moments of his death, he turns to Christ in faithfulness, and Christ says to him, you remember? Remember, what does the gospel say? Today you will, say it with me, be with me in paradise. Euthanatos, the good death. He calls out in faithfulness, even the very moments of his last end of life. And that faithfulness in, in the act of death in some ways nullifies the wretchedness of his life. I'll never forget one time I, I baptized somebody on the very day that they died. It was a man who was suffering with cancer. He was withering away and his whole life he insisted that he was an atheist. He insisted that he had no interest in the things of God. Religion bored him. He put off God. He wanted to stave it off. And then his body began to decay and decay to the very point where we knew it was only hours away. I went to visit the man, share the gospel with him, receives Christ. I asked him, you want to be baptized? He says yes. Baptize this man. On the very day that he died, 10 hours later, he's in eternity. Euthanatos, the good death, nullified a whole life of mistakes because he turned to Christ in the very last hours. There are stories in the history of Christianity. There's a, there's a book actually called Fox's Book of Martyrs, which tells about many of the martyrs. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, one of the things it says, it's really quite shocking, is that sometimes when a martyr is dying for the faith, being killed because of their Christianity, what happens in rare instances is some of the executioners themselves often turn to faith and believe, even as they're supposed to kill the Christians. It's happened before. Euthanatos, the good death, turning to Christ in the very last moments. And so number one is if we want to die a good death, lead a virtuous life. But number two is even more important, faithfulness in the very moments, in the very face of death. And finally, I want to mention this before we close out. This is the third point. A good death inspires those who remain alive. A good death inspires inspires those who remain alive. Now look at how this section ends here in Mark's gospel. Look at this. Look at verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and they took his body and they laid it in the tomb. Now whose disciples is this? It's actually kind of ambiguous here. It could be John's disciples or it could be Jesus' disciples and I'm not sure that the text actually differentiates the two. We know that both John had disciples and Jesus had disciples. In John's gospel, it appears that some of John the Baptist's disciples actually moved over to follow Christ. And so the disciples that are in view here in verse 29 could very well be the disciples, the 12 that we're familiar with, but it could also be some of John's disciples who've now turned over and began following Jesus Christ. That's a possibility too, at least grammatically in the sentence. But either way, what we know is that some disciples went to the palace, and think about this, apparently they knock on the door, or however it works, I don't know, castle gate comes down over the moat, I don't know. 
but they identify themselves as the followers of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And they have to ask permission to take away the body. They would have to ask, right? You'd have to ask somebody. How are you gonna get down to the dungeon to get this body? And so in doing this, this very base, that's a good word, very base act of having to carry this body out, beheaded now, and to give it a proper burial, they would have to publicly identify with John the Baptist, wouldn't they? They would have to associate themselves publicly with the man who the state just regarded as worthy of death. And so you see what I'm getting at here is that they have to take a great risk in publicly associating themselves with Jesus and John the Baptist. They have to take a great risk to say, we are here because we loved him. We are of him. We are one of his kind. And so they're actually taking on quite a a bit of risk, aren't they, by identifying themselves so publicly in this way? And yet we find this is almost a general principle that when a great person dies, very often what happens is that their death actually inspires those who are still alive to make great acts of faithfulness, confidence, boldness. That's exactly what happens here. Who else can you think of, by the way, knowing the Gospels as we do, that was inspired by somebody's death and came to give the hero a proper burial? Who else did that? You think of the women who came to anoint the body of Jesus Christ? How about Nicodemus? Do you remember this interesting character from John chapter three? Nicodemus, one of the Jewish ruling council members, one of the Sanhedrin, and Jesus come, I'm sorry, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Remember John chapter three? Why does he come at night? Ever wonder that? Well, maybe it's just incidental to the story, but maybe it's because he was afraid. Nicodemus is afraid to publicly associate with Jesus, so when the street lights go out, and it's dark enough, Nicodemus goes to Jesus and talks to him about spiritual life. There's a moment in John chapter seven where Nicodemus actually says something that's a little bit bold to the Sanhedrin, but Nicodemus doesn't publicly identify himself as a disciple until Jesus dies on the cross and Nicodemus is one of the few who came to gather his body and to bury him in a proper way. And so ironically that the death of Jesus inspired the courage of Nicodemus. Nicodemus goes from undercover to overcomer because he's inspired by his death. I want to tell you a real quick story. One of the first uh, times as a, past, as a pastor, I got to um, minister to a family who had a member of their, of their household dying. It was a guy by the name of, of Earl Vance, and I was just newly ordained. And this is going to be one of the first times I had to go to a hospice setting to, to go sit with somebody, to pray with somebody, to try to say some good words that would inspire the people who are about ready to grieve the patriarch of their family. And so I, I go to visit him, and this was a good man. He loved the church. He served the church his whole life. He loved missions. He supported many missionaries. In fact, he used to be a, a friend of the theologian R.C. Sproul. He used to be a golfing buddy with R.C. Sproul. This man had lived a good life. And so here I walk into the room and the family's already there. The family's already gathered, 10, 12, 15 of them. The children, the grandchildren, they're all gathering around this aged saint who's about to to die and go into glory. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. All of a sudden, when death was just upon him, he sat up 
and immediately began preaching the gospel to his own family, his children, exhorting them to trust in Christ, telling his grandchildren about the goodness of Jesus. And almost literally with his own dying breaths, he told about how he loved Christ and he wanted every one of his grandchildren to know Jesus as he knowed him as Savior. And then, a couple hours later, euthanatos. I know this is a little bit macabre, but here's what I want you to do as we close out. I want you to think about your own death for a moment. Just think about it. There's the pine box right there. Can you see it? And someday, people are going to gather around. There's going to be a memorial service of some kind. Your whole life will be reduced to four or five paragraphs in an obituary that's published in a newspaper somewhere. And people will come. They'll come. Some of them won't have been in a church for a very long time, but they'll come to a memorial service, right? Others, they're there in church every week. And somebody like me is going to get up front. I'm going to have a suit jacket on like I have on today. They're going to start saying words about your life. Maybe there will be an open mic time when other people come up and they say something too. What are they going to say? What are they going to have to say about you? I've been in these moments before where I'm supposed to say good words about somebody's life and to be honest, that can be a little bit hard. Sometimes people stretch the truth a little bit just to be nice, right? But sometimes there's there's a person who passes away whose life has been a burning and shining lamp. They have lived a life that has glorified God. They have been faithful unto death. And even being there in the room on that occasion is inspiring to those who are still alive. Euthanatos. The good death, the great death, is not the death of John the Baptist, as good as it was. The good death, the euthanatos, is the death of Jesus Christ. While many deaths may inspire us, only the death of Jesus can save us. While our loved ones will go on and they will live in our memories, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, actually lives in our hearts. While many deaths may signal the end of one life, only Christ's death produces the life of many. And so let's pray as we thank him and ask him to make our lives worthy of such an occasion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John the Baptist We thank you for his faithfulness unto death. Lord, we realize that there are many who are persecuted in difficulty around the world. We pray for them that they would stand fast. Father, thinking ahead to the eventuality of our own demise, we recognize that we are mortals, that none of us can live forever. But we pray, Heavenly Father, that our lives would be significant even as we burn and shine for you, burning with love, shining with witness. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.